Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Hello. This is the Weber Wenzel Legal Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Toby Shapshak. With the COVID-19 lockdown remaining in effect for an extended period, many South African businesses, including those in the technology, media, and telecommunication sectors, are facing tough questions. Luckily, however, many people within the industry are not afraid of disruption and the opportunities that this can create. Also, the telecoms and tech sector has been at the forefront of leading the global economy through this crisis. Key issues for the sector are complex and wide. No single podcast could deal with all of them without extending our lockdown periods by a couple of weeks. But within the series, we will highlight some select issues for businesses looking to life as we transition out of this lockdown. The issues we will be discussing with Weber Wenzel's legal experts include tracking and tracing, workplace well-being, technology opportunities, this vile spread of fake news, and the opportunity to settle disputes through the courts. On the 2nd of April, amendments to regulations allowed for the National Department of Health to institute a COVID-19 tracing database to help trace people who might have come into contact with a person of interest, quote, one who has or might have contracted COVID-19, end quote. To take us through this, I'm going to ask media law expert Nzipo Ngomezulu. So in introducing the tracking and tracing regulations in early April, the government explained that it saw this as being a necessary step in the fight against the spread of COVID-19, as according to them, they needed all the help they could get in tracking those infected or exposed to COVID-19. In particular, the regulations gave the Director General of the Department of Health the authority to approach the likes of MTN, Vodacom and Telcom, etc., and to request the location information of certain individuals that they deemed to be persons of interest, either because they were exposed to persons infected by COVID-19 or themselves were infected by COVID-19. Now, this, of course, raised a number of privacy concerns, especially because the Director General was not required to first notify those individuals who were the subject of his request for location information. People were particularly concerned about whether the information collected by the state would be used properly in the first instance, and whether this information would be protected by the state. Now, this right that was given to the Director General didn't last very long, as the government repealed the track and tracing regulations on 8 May, just over a month after they were first introduced. So while the regulations have been repealed, the fact remains that the government did have the right during this period to collect information that is quite sensitive and personal in nature. So the question then becomes, what happens to that information now? On that score, I must say that the regulations did contain a number of safeguards, 
which attempted to strike a balance between everyone's right to privacy on the one hand and the need to track those infected so as to limit infections. I've identified a few of these safeguards which were included in the regulations, which I think went a long way in trying to check the state. Firstly, the regulations made it quite clear that the state could only request location-related data and could not request the contents of any electronic communications. So it was actually quite comforting to know that the contents of our emails, SMSs, or WhatsApp messages could not be accessed under the regulations. Secondly, the location information that could be requested could not predate 5 March 2020. So in effect, the state was only entitled to request location information that was from 5 March 2020 up until the repeal of the regulations on the 8th of May 2020. Third, any information that was provided by cell phone companies to the state for track and tracing purposes may only be kept by the state for a period of six weeks. After this period, the location information must be destroyed. So in effect, the state is compelled to destroy this information after six weeks. The last thing that I wanted to mention is that the Director General is required within six weeks of the end of the national state of disaster to firstly notify every person whose information was obtained in terms of the regulations. So you will know at some point if your information was obtained and this won't remain a secret from you. Second, the Director General is required to anonymize or destroy the remaining information in the tracking and tracing database so as to ensure that this information doesn't fall into the wrong hands. Now, on this issue of the information falling into the wrong hands, of course, it's important to bear in mind that the state also has an obligation to safeguard and protect this information whilst this information remains in its possession and under its control. So whilst the state still has control of the information and whilst the information is still within the national database, the state is required to ensure that that information is protected from the likes of cyber hackers and other cyber criminals and must put in place measures aimed at protecting this information. There are no businesses, big or small, that have not been facing very tough questions about their workplace and their employees. Trying to keep people safe while working remotely where possible and trying to keep business going all at the same time can be extremely difficult and very stressful. There are some government incentives, some legal options. Businesses and employees often face new challenges as the terms of the lockdown tend to shift. We're going to speak to a legal expert Shane Johnson about some of the, the HR issues around the lockdown. Thank you, Toby. The notion of a return to work for employees in the TMT sector is a bit of a misnomer, as many employers in this industry have been able to continue working during the lockdown, either through remote working or due to classification as an essential service. So I think that is really the starting point for a discussion on this particular question. Be that as it may, once the hard lockdown is lifted on the 1st of May, this may open up the possibility for TMT employers to return to their physical workplaces, i.e. their office space. And in planning for such a return, they will need to look at several considerations. There is a new directive by the Department of Employment and Labor on health and safety measures for the workplace, which will be published soon. Employers must ensure that they adhere to the measures in this directive, 
And if they don't, they may be faced with closure. Employees will also only be allowed to return to the workplace in batches of around one third at a time. And we're still waiting for further guidance on exactly how that will be managed. Gatherings are also still likely to be prohibited, particularly gatherings in the workplace. Additional personal protective equipment for the workplace, such as masks, sanitizers, disinfectants, and the like, must also be considered. Certain administrative controls should be introduced, including medical surveillance, symptom screening, and temperature checking, as well as a policy on medical testing. And certain engineering controls should also be considered, including maintaining proper ventilation systems. An area in the workplace must also be designated for isolation by employees who may display symptoms whilst at work. There must also be a clear policy on domestic and international travel by employees and what the consequences of travel on employees will be. Training programs for employees on COVID-19 and health and safety for employees should also be in place. And other issues to consider relate to building access control by employees, visitors, customers, clients, or contractors, as well as the formulation of a clear emergency plan if an employee tests positive for COVID-19. As a general rule, though, all social distancing and proper hygiene practices must obviously still continue. Shane, some of the key considerations also need to do with with the difference between the different levels of lockdown and more shifts to come. If uh, if employees continue working from home, will it impact their remuneration? Can some employees be forced to take leave? Again, Toby, I think it is important to note that many employers within the sector have continued to work throughout the lockdown, and the change from level five to level four may not necessarily impact on their ability to continue operating. In fact, many employers in the IT and telecom space may have experienced an upsurge in business with increased demand for certain services like cloud services, e-commerce, social media, video conferencing and gaming, and the equipment that comes with such services. If you move to the media space, a key and essential function is being played by various role players in that space in ensuring that the public is kept up to date on the COVID-19 pandemic as it develops. However, the transition from level five to level four may assist such employers to operate more easily as other sectors will slowly be allowed to begin operations after 1 May. For employers, particularly those in the IT industry who have embraced the remote working from home model, those employers will need to consider using that model after the hard lockdown is lifted. They will need to use this model for the foreseeable future and at least until South Africa reaches a level two alert level. On the question around the impact on remuneration, many TMT employers have not been as hard hit as employers in other sectors by the pandemic. But the overall impact of COVID-19 on business may mean that TMT employers will need to implement measures such as reduced hours and reduced pay, temporary layoffs, and the utilization of annual leave in the near future. In terms of forced leave, the Basic Conditions of Employment Act provides that annual leave must be taken at a time determined by the employer. An employer may force an employee to take annual leave for a particular period, However, this also depends on the wording of the contract of employment and the leave policy. The Department of Employment and Labor has also encouraged employers to avoid requiring employees to take annual leave, and instead, they should apply for assistance through the Temporary Employer-Employee Relief Scheme 
under the unemployment insurance fund. However, given that it may not be possible for employers to apply for TERS after the hard lockdown has been lifted, employers may still be in a position where they need to require employees to take annual leave after the 1st of May. On a return to the office environment, there may also be instances where the employer may need to request employees to take leave in order to self-quarantine for a period of 14 days or more as a precautionary measure. In this instance, the employee will not be able to obtain a medical certificate as the employee will not be sick. And the question then becomes, what leave is applicable? If the employee can self-quarantine and work from home, no leave will be applicable. If that is not possible, the employer will need to consider awarding a form of special paid leave since this is an employer-imposed decision. It's hard to imagine winners at a time like this, but there are in fact some winners indeed. With a massive drive in technology solutions from track and trace apps to online learning and significantly reduced data costs, this is a real window for technology to shine. Those focused on or invested in technology will also have a real opportunity here. And that's according to many commentators, including technology law expert Leanne Mostert. So Leanne, do you, uh, do you think technology has been a winner during this crisis? Yes, Toby, I do. Technology has a vital role to play in the response to COVID-19, both in developing tools to fight the virus itself and in cushioning the impact on society and the economy as the pandemic persists. As The Economist says, the pandemic will have many losers, but it already has one clear winner, big tech. The large digital platforms, including Alphabet and Facebook, will probably come out of the crisis even stronger. They should use this good fortune to reset their sometimes testy relations with their users and we see that many of them are already making efforts to do so. However, even big tech will see challenges because, of course, many of their customers are negatively impacted. For example, Google has cautioned this morning that its ad revenue is expected to drop in the second quarter. I, however, take comfort in the fact that history shows us that people are highly innovative in the face of adversity. Our adaptability and resilience is our great strength and technology positions us far better to find solutions than during other disasters like the Spanish flu. Indeed, Leanne. In fact, one of the things we're really good at as South Africans is solving problems, and and we've been very effective over the years at at finding solutions to these kinds of problems. So although COVID-19 might be incurable as yet, we have some potent weapons to fight the virus including artificial intelligence and high-performance computing. AI tools have a proven track record in medical use cases, particularly in diagnosis and treatment. So we are seeing that AI is being used to search for new molecules capable of treating COVID-19, to scan through lung CTs for signs of COVID-related pneumonia, and to aid epidemiologists who track the disease's spread early on. There are many other applications of technology in the fight against the virus. On the hardware front, technology can support everything from searching for equipment suppliers and distributing tests and medicines quickly through to 3D printing bulbs for ventilators. As you know, Apple and Google recently announced a system for tracking the spread of the virus, 
allowing users to share data through Bluetooth low energy transmission and approved apps from health organizations. Unlike some other methods, like say using GPS data, this Bluetooth plan wouldn't track people's physical location. It would basically pick up on the signals of nearby phones at five minutes interval and store the connections between them in a database. If one person tests positive for the virus, the app could be alerted and it could notify other people whose phones passed within close range in the preceding days. Crucially, there is no centrally accessible master list of which phones have matched contagious or otherwise. That's because the phones themselves are performing the cryptographic calculations required to protect privacy. The central servers only maintain the database of shared keys rather than the interactions between those keys. Such contact tracing technology solutions help determine hotspots and crucially cool spots where risk analysis suggests that people can start convening again. Outside the fight against the virus itself, tech companies have stepped up to manage the surge in demand for video conferencing and messaging services. We see newcomers such as Slack and Zoom who have become household names, while chat platform Microsoft Teams saw daily active users skyrocket by 12 million to 44 million in March. Office-based companies like Weber Wenzel are discovering that we can operate surprisingly effectively with staff working remotely. Our IT team did a phenomenal job equipping the entire firm to do so. This experience is likely to change the way we work going forward. Many other organizations from shops and restaurants to fitness studios and performers are adapting their businesses and migrating to the internet to stay active. Online education providers have experienced exponential demand and many schools and universities globally are using technology to continue with education. Microsoft has reported that its Teams platform is being used for remote learning in 175 countries by 183 institutions in April alone. Amazon has employed 100,000 new staff in March and are adding 75,000 more to keep up with higher e-commerce orders. We also have seen the online streaming services gaining unprecedented rises and compared to February, Searches for Disney Plus grew globally by 232%. It's fascinating, isn't it, Leanne, how quickly we have adapted to this and, and worked so so quickly to find another way of working. I mean, this work-from-home uh, situation has, has caught a lot of people by surprise. But as you say, a company like Weber Wenzel has been able to transition very adeptly so that everyone can continue functioning. What, what are some of the other legal issues that, that innovators should be aware of? Well, COVID-19 will not be stopped without innovation and therefore IP. In times of crisis where innovators are focused on finding urgent solutions to the many needs that have arisen, it's all too easy to forget about protecting IP and about regulating IP ownership and use. Innovators must not lose sight of these key issues. A failure to do so may destroy the value of the IP and may even give rise to the innovator not being able to use their IP. Looking at IP protection, if an innovator has created a new patentable invention, then to benefit from the monopoly afforded by the patent protection, the innovator must apply for patent protection before making the product or services available to the public. 
if the innovator launches the product or service before applying for the patent protection, then the novelty of the invention is destroyed and the invention will no longer be eligible for valid patent protection. So you can imagine people are obviously very anxious to get their solutions to the market, but they must pause and consider what protection they should be applying for, otherwise they won't have any protection. We are also seeing many extraordinary collaborations between different parties seeking to come up with solutions for treating and managing COVID-19. Here, it is essential to regulate who will own the IP, who will protect, maintain, and enforce the IP, and who will be entitled to use the IP, and for what purposes, and in which countries. A failure to agree these issues will leave the IP being regulated by the common law and by the default position as addressed by IP legislation. This will mean that if the IP is jointly created, then it will be jointly owned. Unfortunately, jointly owned IP can only be used if all the joint owners agree to such use. You can only imagine how many problems are likely to arise in this scenario. It often gives rise to nobody using the IP and lots of litigation. All you innovators out there, Please pause to enter into an agreement to regulate IP ownership and use before proceeding further with your collaboration. If the parties involved are in other countries, then IP exchange control considerations are also key. Any transfer of IP between a South African resident and a non-resident requires the prior approval of the South African Reserve Bank. So taking time to consider the IP in your innovations is key to the successful future monetization of the new technology. Thanks, Leah. And that's really great. It's going to be a complex world. And, and thankfully, Weber Wenzel allows you to navigate that a lot easier. Dario Milo, let's now turn, unfortunately, to the darker opportunities out there. Who are those who are punting fake news? Some might be innocent in spreading this or think they, they believe it's true, but others are actively trying to disseminate incorrect information. In response to these high stakes associated with fake news in this environment of, of fear and uncertainty, we've seen COVID-19 responses bring to bear harsh consequences to peddlers of fake news. Under the lockdown regulations, there is a provision um, which creates a criminal offence if anyone publishes through any medium, so including social media, any information that is false and fake and with the intention to deceive others, uh, either about COVID-19 or about um, anyone's infection status, or thirdly, about government measures to address the pandemic. So it certainly is a criminal offence, Toby, and it is punishable by a fine and or um, imprisonment up to six months. Are, are these regulations constitutionally valid? Could they possibly restrict freedom of speech? You know, fake news laws and false news laws are problematic in a democracy because we've seen experiences worldwide where oppressive governments, authoritative regimes use those kinds of, of laws to punish critics of their reign um, and of their rule. So, you know, traditionally journalists, for example, are prosecuted in many of these countries for infringing fake news laws. Uh, this is, however, a different kind of fake news law, and it's actually quite revealing that in South Africa, there are only, apart from the common law, like defamation and criminal injury, there are only two specific statutory 
fake news criminal offences, the ones in, um, in the context of elections, if you publish false information that is intended to deceive in an election period, but now we have one about COVID-19. What makes this one different from the general fake news laws that we see in these other countries is that it's very specifically targeted at what I mentioned, those three categories. But secondly, it creates a very high threshold. It will only punish those who intend to deceive. In other words, someone who knows what they're saying is false or who is reckless about whether they are saying something false or not. And nevertheless, they go ahead. That's very heartening to hear because I suppose the intentionality of lying is is the deciding factor. There are any number of innocent retweets of uh, you know suggestions to drink bleach, but if you intentionally say it, that's that's totally different. It also speaks to a bigger problem, which is the disinformation going around on the internet and how that affects the government's efforts in addressing the pandemic. One unfortunately needs to think no further than some of Donald Trump's briefings, in particular his recent implied acceptance of the potential utility of using disinfectants to stop the spread of the virus, uh, to realize that words have consequences, particularly when they come from, of course, powerful people and and public officials. Um, And I have to say on that score that law can play a part in addressing misinformation and disinformation, but they can't do everything that we need in our country to address false news. Um, and the spread of false news. And that's where public education comes in. And I think that our government has done a pretty good job in terms of setting up WhatsApp groups, setting up uh, websites that are dedicated to information and education about COVID-19, regular statements issued by the, the Minister of Health, you know, not infrequent addressing of the nation by our president. And of course, there are also platforms such as uh, Real 411, which Media Monitoring Africa has launched, which are there to enable people to report what they think might be uh, fake news and they have a, a system of adjudication to try and deal with that. So ultimately, it's not really law that's going to stem this problem, I think, but it's going to be a question of public education and all of us interrogating at an individual level the information we get before we retweet, repost, like, etc. I think we all have a responsibility in that regard. One of the things that you've mentioned that's been so heartening in South Africa is just how strong our leadership has been. And Cyril Ramaphosa and and Zwedi Makiza, it's the health minister, have both really led from the front, solid briefings, reassuring, calming. Uh, It's powerful when the message is being delivered by calm, powerful people who do appear to be in control of the response. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's been a lesson, I think, in leadership for many other countries. You know, there there are a handful of countries who have handled the pandemic from a communication perspective and from the perspective of the the leaders of the countries taking seriously what the scientists say. I'm happy to say South Africa is amongst those because, you know, when one contrasts that to some of the blunders that we've seen in, in countries where one would have expected far better, it is certainly quite heartening, as you say, Toby, that we can count ourselves, I think, as a country that has handled this pandemic as best we could, but with transparency and with public engagement. And long may that continue. Indeed, long may that continue. A great deal has been stopped, Dario, during lockdown, and and many past and future disputes have not resolved themselves because the, the, the justice system has not been around to assist them with this. 
courts are obviously places where COVID-19, like anywhere people gather, could spread very quickly. So how do the courts protect themselves and the citizens, but also still create access to justice and keep the wheels of justice turning? It's a, it's a very tricky, problematic thing, but yet technology is offering a, a good solution here. Toby, you're absolutely right that the wheels of justice have to keep turning. And I think there were some in the judiciary who, when we had the initial 21-day lockdown, thought that we could pretty much press pause, um, only hear urgent matters, and you know, after the 21 days, we'd get back to normal. It's clear that that's not going to happen. And I'm quite happy to say that the recent directives from heads of the judiciary recognize that actually the default rule has to be limiting physical contact. And really, the, the question is how you do that in a way that nevertheless ensures that matters get heard, there's no backlog of what's already in the system, uh, and you do so in, in a way that, as you say, promotes access to justice. Toby, I think what, what we are seeing, and we see it, of course, at Weber Wenzel as well, where we've, because of our um, historic investment in technology, we've been able to move most of the firm onto um, a platform, Microsoft Teams, which has been you know, an incredible lesson for all of us. Indeed, Darian, you touch on on so many points there because it does seem impossible to understand from the outside non-lawyers why the court system couldn't be digitized more. It does seem like it's perfectly enabled for that kind of thing. And it does seem like the lawyers and all the other participants who would need to have the technology and the internet access to be able to do that kind of thing. There was a a very interesting quote from a doctor, a GP in London, speaking to the New York Times about telemedicine. And he said, we're basically witnessing 10 years of change in one week, which I thought really sums up so much of the change we're seeing in the world right now, and especially in industries that have resisted technology change because they have a system. And even if the system is slow and cumbersome, like the court system is, it does work. So we're seeing this very rapid change, uh, usually the kind of change you really only see in, in wartime, isn't it? That analogy is being used all over by people to describe the, the rapid and enforced changes to the way we work and the way we live. And that's the world we live in now, isn't it? But there must be some aspects of adjudication that, that cannot take place remotely, and that, that must be face-to-face. You were talking about cross-examination. So are all aspects of, of the legal procedure possible, or is it at least in, if for the short term, we can rely on technology to replicate almost all of the courtroom experience, and it's going to be quicker and easier for everybody to log on and participate. There's no shuffling of people in and out of courtrooms. There's no physical traveling required. This can all be done very quickly via a, a video call. One of the probably very few silver linings on the COVID-19 cloud, Toby, I think, is that it has dragged the legal profession and the judiciary into the, the fourth industrial revolution in the sense that uh, whereas there might have been some pessimism about how technology can make the business of adjudication more efficient uh, and the business of lawyering actually more efficient, I think we've all seen, certainly my experience has been, that you know the technology is phenomenal in enabling you in a business like law to actually keep things going, even under lockdown, whether it's regular meetings with your teams on MS Teams or in Zoom or, or one of those uh, platforms, or whether it's having a, a hearing, a court hearing uh, using video conferencing facilities, this can be done. And 
and it is being done. So the recent court directives that have been released recognize that the default rule should be, you know, limited physical contact and only in exceptional cases while the lockdown period is in place. But even when we progress to level four and beyond, in fact, the Pretoria and Johannesburg directives mention a period until at least the first week of July, um, that should be the rule. So the default rule should be that we need to do things remotely. Either it means that perhaps a hearing is not required if all the papers are before the court um, and the parties agree, or it could mean in more cases that you would have video conferencing. And, and indeed, a number of judges have already embraced video conferencing to adjudicate some disputes. You know, this is in line with what's happening in many other countries in the United Kingdom, in, in Australia. There was recently a very interesting judgment by the Federal Court of Australia where Ford, the, the motor company, is being sued in a class action lawsuit for alleged defective gearboxes. And a six-week trial has been set down. The judge was asked whether he would postpone the case because of COVID-19. And effectively, the judge said, you know, even though we've got a six-week trial, even though we've got experts, oral testimony that's required is not just that one can rely on the papers that have been filed. Even with all those challenges, the judge said, I'm not postponing the case. The six-week trial is going to go ahead and we can do it through video technology um, and in fact, he made the comment, which I found particularly interesting, that as a judge who had used Zoom, Microsoft Teams, etc., before, he found the process of being able to study the witness who was giving evidence under cross-examination far more revealing on a an internet platform where you can sort of see the, the features um, and the body language of the person giving evidence, even then in the courtroom. So look, I, I'm not saying that we should forever and a day now make this a permanent feature of our legal system that there should be remote hearings. But I certainly think that if there's any silver lining of COVID-19, it's, you know, being able to use technology in this way. And hopefully some of what we're doing will remain permanent features beyond the pandemic. Video testimony by live stream YouTube. Who would have thunk it? I mean, that is quite a remarkable just shift in technology and the use of technology. And yet it seems kind of obvious and easy, doesn't it? Toby, you're absolutely right. I'd add to that cheaper as well. So it's quicker, it's easier, but it's also cheaper. I mean, the amount of times that I've waited in court for a case to be called, and of course, lawyers being creatures who charge by the hour, um, that has an impact on clients. Any litigator will tell you there have been times when a case has been set down and they've been asked to come back the next day or later in the week because of something that happens. You know, all that kind of logistical, administrative red tape, uh, one can cut through with the use of technology where you can have a court hearing, um, you know, beginning at a certain time, everyone logs in, you're able to deal with it fairly swiftly. I have to say one issue that hasn't yet been dealt with properly or clearly is the issue of media access to court hearings, because it's all very well not having physical hearings where you can avoid them and having video hearings. But you also need a mechanism to allow the public and, and the media to be able to attend those hearings. And we were quite interested to hear from our colleagues at Linklaters last week when they did a webinar on um, arbitration. And one of our colleagues there said they had just uh, had a trial that was heard in the English High Court via video. And because of the need for the public to have access, it was also simultaneously streamed through a YouTube channel. So those kind of innovations, I think, are things we need to look at so that uh, at once we give, of course, 
justice to the parties involved, but at the same time we ensure that the public's right and the media's right to witness and to participate through the process of listening, taking notes, analysing court cases. We must ensure that that's not undermined if video hearings become the norm during this pandemic. Sticking with technology, we've seen e-payment systems playing a really key role in keeping the economy going, especially during lockdown with the regulators ramping up efforts to develop a new and more up-to-date regulatory framework for e-payments. We've also seen efforts by the Reserve Bank to keep the economy going. I'm going to speak to David de Villiers to just get your take. David, are these initiatives really going to work and are they going to be giving enough support or should there be more to be done? Thanks, Toby. So I think it has really been an interesting time for the payments environment. And I think it really stems from two factors. On the one hand, traditional cash-based commerce creates the risk of uh, transmission of the uh, COVID-19 virus. So I've read that in some countries, central banks are actually telling the banks they supervise to either burn cash or alternatively sanitize um, cash. South Africa hasn't followed that model. But then, of course, as people find themselves locked in, unable to move around freely and transact in the normal course, there has been an enhanced need to find an alternative to to transact. And it is within that context that e-payments has certainly stepped in and and I think very much uh, filled the gap. Now, of course, e-payments have been with us for a very long time, and particularly in Africa and also in South Africa, electronic payments is uh, very, very advanced. The African experience, South African experience has been that we have actually been in many ways ahead of the rest of the world when it comes to e-payments because of the way our economy functioned. So... I think what what I've observed, perhaps anecdotally, is that there's certainly been an uptick in the way that e-payments have been used, and that has really been very interesting. From a regulatory perspective, the South African regulators have monitored e-payments closely prior to this pandemic, and they have set themselves the task of developing a fit-for-purpose regulatory regime for e-payments, which previously wasn't well catered for under, under existing regulatory models. And I think it'll be interesting to see going forward whether those efforts to develop a new regulatory regime, perhaps one that facilitates and makes it easier for e-payment providers to access the market, will perhaps be fast-tracked. What we've also seen in this time is that the regulators are functioning well, and to the extent that they currently regulate e-payments, they've continued to do so, and we've certainly seen them release a number of very interesting guidance notes to try and ensure that this very important facet of perhaps uh, what a new economy might look like is functioning well. You make a really good point there, and one that I'm I'm particularly passionate about is that Africa has been an early adopter in so much of this new mobile form of payment, haven't we? Because we've had no alternative, and as a result, we know how to use it, and we could use it. I mean, to my mind, I think it could be much more efficiently used for the distribution of social grants. Mobile money is a is a new payment system, but that's a, a conversation for another day, David. Thank you very much. There's another very interesting thing that we need to look at, which is how this is going to have an impact on tax and tax relief measures related to COVID-19. And I'm going to turn to tax expert 
Cor Kramwinkel, who is going to talk to us through this interesting development where National Treasury and the South African Revenue Service have drafted two bills to provide the legislative amendments required to implement these COVID-19 tax relief measures. Cor, what incentives are there and what should be put in place to help businesses in this time? Toby, before we speak about the uh, the details, I think uh, it's notable our, how flexible and quick in, to react our government is and continue to be in relation to the COVID matters. Earlier this month, the two bills you've mentioned were draft bills were published. Uh, a couple of days ago, those measures were expanded upon simply because our government realized that the initial measures weren't adequate. So that's a huge kudos to draft legislation and it, within a couple of weeks, update that shows uh, leadership that I think is exemplary on a worldwide scale. Talking about the incentives, we'll all be familiar with uh, the 500 billion stimulus package that President Ramaphosa announced uh, about a week ago. Of that 500 billion, about 70 billion relates to tax. And of that 70 billion, about a third is an actual reduction in tax. So that means you're ultimately going to pay less tax and those measures are largely focused around the maintenance or, or the support of smaller businesses and lower income workers. Two thirds of the tax package is largely around liquidity and the enhancement of liquidity. And what government is effectively doing there is extending interest-free loans to small and medium-sized businesses by saying, you don't have to pay your tax now. Roughly, there would be a four-month window where you can defer payments that otherwise would have been made. And in the indirect tax space, enhancing the turnaround time for VAT refunds. In a small business, having to wait a month, two or three to get a VAT refund in these times could mean the difference between surviving or not surviving or making a payment to some employees or not. So what government is saying there for certain levels of small businesses, instead of them filing a two-monthly return and effectively just waiting two months for a VAT refund, this could be done every month for a certain period. Why do I say these measures are largely focused around small and medium-sized businesses? It's because, A, the actual incentive side, so the reduction in tax, is focused around employees that earn less than six and a half thousand rand a month. And although that doesn't uh, distinguish between uh, small and large uh, businesses, it really is aimed at the lower end of the employee tax scale. Then the further relief measures is to do with a deferral in employees tax and provisional tax payments. There the thresholds for qualifying entities has been set at a gross income of 100 million per annum. So 100 million is already a step up, but in the greater context, 100 million uh, does not yet get you into big business. And I'm not sure that big business, all of them are able to easily ride this out. I think there are a number of big businesses that even though they've got scale, would also still struggle. One will, will hope that government will monitor this. And with the speed that the government reacted to enhancing these thresholds, perhaps we will see further increases in thresholds later on. Nevertheless, there is an ability for all businesses, so irrespective of threshold, to approach SARS on an individual basis in order to request deferrals of payments of specific taxes, and that would be arranged then on a case-by-case -case basis with SARS. 
Then on the some smaller things, some logical things, you know, the, the lockdown around tobacco and alcohol sales, many of those products are imported. The excise duties and the import duties are payable early on in that process. And the inability for those importers to on-sell their products, of course, causes them some significant cash flow problems. So there's some detailed relief measures in there. So in a nutshell, 70 billion as a portion of the 500 billion stimulus package is significant. 44 billion, so two-thirds of the tax package is really just deferrals. A third is an actual reduction in tax, but we do sit with the tension. One can logically believe uh, you can't just take away tax because at some point all of us would need to recoup the um, uh, losses that we do suffer now and the government would be one of them. Thank you, Cole. I mean, that's good to know that the part of the incentive that the government is offering is such good savings because, of course, it's what people need, isn't it? You've been listening to a podcast by Weber Wenzel. I'm the host, Toby Shapshak. The producers of Volume and the executive producer is Paula Youngens. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe for following exciting episodes of these legal insights. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.